why is this current crisis different from other types of crises that we faced in the past? So what we're dealing with is a constellation of stressors, external stressors that are overwhelming our internal resources. And these are a constellation of major crises in and of themselves. So we have a pandemic, we have significant social unrest and upheaval, uh, we have huge financial disruption. We have an emotional temperature in our country that's climbing and climbing and climbing as we get closer to the election. Um, we have things like isolation and the, the nature of the pandemic even impacts our social contracts with our loved ones in terms of how we grieve and, and how we're with them. So um, this is really, um, a very unusual crisis, and it's a non-discrete crisis in that there's no distinct beginning and end. It has started, and it's going to continue to keep going and evolving, which requires that we constantly adapt and, and change to this. It's a, it's a tough one. Yeah. I've, you keep hearing the word new normal, new normal. Let's take a step back, and what is considered normal, Lisa, right now? Yeah. And when I hear new normal, um, especially in, in the work that I've been doing with people, today is your normal. What, whatever is going on today is your normal. And there's no rule book that says a normal has to last 24 hours or 36 hours. So what is normal today in a non-discrete crisis will change tomorrow. Every day is your normal for that day. And when you become accustomed to being flexible and adapting, to what is possible within your environment on that day, within what's possible, it, it reduces the, the pressure and the stress that we have to try to do something that's simply not doable right now. So in terms of responses, how are we responding? I always say to people, what is the normal response to the experience you're having? Right? So what's the normal response to being confined for eight months? What's the normal response to having to go through a lab analysis every time you want to go to the grocery store in terms of you know, risk factor? What's the response to seeing your business or your finances slide off a cliff? You know, so when we talk about normal, we have to talk about that in the context of what we're experiencing. And the real question is, when we're talking about responses, is it interfering with our functioning or not? Is it interfering with our behavior or, or not? Yeah. Mental health. How would you say that our mental health is being affected during this time? Significantly. And I don't care who you are. I don't care how much resources you have. No one is going through this time in any part of the world unaffected. Now we're not being affected all in the same way, but we are all being affected. And what I've been saying to people is you're not imagining this, right? Chronic stress responses and crisis fatigue is real. You're, you're not being a weenie. You're not exaggerating. You're not whining. You are a human being responding to external stressors that are overwhelming your internal resources on a chronic ongoing basis. We are dealing with multiple, a constellation of multiple stressors simultaneously, right? So as I said before, 
uh, what's happening to our social um, fabric in our country, what's going on with protests, what's happening with COVID, what's going on with, with businesses and people's livelihoods and you know health and, and, and all of that together. So crisis fatigue is a very real thing and it has specific drivers to it. One of those drivers is constantly being in survival mode, right? And the brain is not hardwired to be in survival mode all the time. The brain goes into that survival mode, in that fight or flight mode, when it gets activated by certain criteria and stimuli. But the brain is hardwired to be in that 20 to 30 minutes at a time max, not hour after hour, day after day, right? And even before COVID, the Western culture is reeks with chronic stress, right? And there are consequences to our brain. But being in a survival mode from a pandemic, so that's number one. Number two, um, the, the chronic risk analysis, you know, should I go to the store now or should I wait until early tomorrow morning? Is it okay to go to Thanksgiving dinner? Should I, is it okay to sit with my family or my friends? So everything becomes this risk analysis that creates a complexity in decision-making that is just exhausting. And so after a while you say, forget going to the grocery store, I'll starve. I just can't be, it's enough. I can't be, you know, I can't be bothered. Um, chronic uncertainty. Um, Western cultures are very tied and attached to knowing what's going to be. We're planners. We want to know to the, to the nth minute what's going to happen. And that was never really something that we can do. Just because we plan for something doesn't mean that tomorrow is going to come out that way. But we get very attached in our assumptive world of making plans and that's how the world is going to be and that's how my day is going to go. And when there's uncertainty, particularly in Western cultures, that makes us very uncomfortable and it creates also a feeling of a lack of safety. Because in our culture, certainty is equated to a certain amount of safety right so uncertainty makes people very uneasy and they start living a life of free-floating you know anxiety um, and also moral distress um, i get a lot of questions from people what do i do my sister is taking care of my mom you know very far away my she won't wear a mask she won't socially distance what do i do with the person i'm living with who won't do the and so Moral distress is being faced with a set of circumstances that violate our professional or personal ethics and moral code and not being able to do anything about it. And I see that ramping up more and more and more. It causes a very real psychological distress and it's really going to get bad when people start going back into the workplace. So crisis fatigue um, is very real. It, it's very real. It has very real symptoms. You're not making it up. Yeah. Let's focus on isolation. Why is isolation so damaging to your mental health? And confinement is a driver of crisis fatigue. And when we are isolated as human beings, again, it goes against our nature, the way we're hardwired. We are tactile animals. We need to touch each other. We need to touch things. Uh, we are hardwired to be in community, and it's why um, prison sentences that involve extreme isolation um, or torture that involves extreme isolation is very damaging to us psychologically because our brain is hardwired 
uh, to be with people. And particularly if we are in a state of survival mode, our brain is very wired to connect with other people. Our brain actually um, cascades stress chemicals, one of them being oxytocin, which actually increases our desire to connect with other people. And the brain understands that human beings get through crisis through connection of, of other people. And so when we cannot be with each other physically, there, there is um, a deficit, right? I can see you and we're talking right now. Mm -hmm. What we're not really doing that we do when we're in a room together is that we're not exchanging energy, which is an invisible thing, but human beings do that. And we're also not exchanging some of the nonverbal cues that we pick up in person that informs us if it's safe to be around you, right? We do a lot of communicating with each other nonverbally that just is diminished or cut off when we're, you know, virtual and, and we can't touch each other. Uh, so it, it's really a detriment uh, physically, emotionally, um, and psychologically when when we're isolated and it drives depression. Yeah. Let's focus on uncertainty. Why is uncertainty so hard to cope with? Because in Western culture particularly, we're trained to believe that uncertainty um, is equated with threat. If we cannot predict, if we don't know, then we're acculturated to believe that more often than not, bad things will happen. We have to be constantly in a preventive mode or a preparation mode. We don't live in a culture, in Western culture, where um, we live in the now, right? And that's part of our, our problem, is that we are constantly imagining a future and trying to live in that future before it gets here. And that's also the driver of anxiety. Being frightened of something in the future that hasn't even happened and may never happen. And a lot of people actually have this magical thinking that if I worry enough about something, um, it will prepare me in some way so that it won't happen. Or if I worry enough about something, it means I'm not taking anything for granted and I won't be punished you know, for assuming good will come to me. We're, we're acculturated in these ways in the West, where in Eastern cultures, the, the focus on, is on today, living in the now, being very present in the now and not thinking about really figuring out what to do in the future because the future will come. And I, I am reminded by a great quote by Eckhart Tolle that I, I really like and that everything that happened in the past happened in the now and everything that will happen in the future happens in the now. Right. So it, it's a cultural thing with us about uncertainty. And if we can retrain our brain and our mind to look at uncertainty with curiosity, um, see it as um, opportunity rather than automatically equating it with uh, threat or fear, we would psychologically um, be doing much better right now, I think, with, with that factor. So Lisa, we've been hearing a lot about the term resilience. Yeah. What is resilience? So resilience is a really interesting thing. Um, everyone is becoming very familiar with the word, but 
people don't necessarily know exactly what it is or how to build it. And there are kind of two, two ways of thinking about resilience. The American way of thinking about resilience, um, the American Psychological Association talks about resilience where someone has experienced some kind of upheaval or challenge and then they're able to get back to where they were or get back to uh, a baseline. Whereas in Stockholm, with the Stockholm Resilience Center associated with Stockholm University, they look at it a little bit differently. They have three pillars uh, under resilience. The first is persistence, right? Persisting through this challenge. The second is adapting to what this challenge is asking of us, right? And the third is transformation. And that's the big difference between the Swedish way of looking at this in the American way. The American way looks at you have this upheaval and now we'll get back to where we were. We're very comfortable with what we knew. We always want to hang on to what, what we know and what we knew. Where the Swedish version is, no, we've been transformed by this persistence and adapting. And we are now in a different place, better prepared for the future challenge. And when I do resilience work with people, I embrace the, the Swedish concept more than I do the American concept because I think it just gives us more tools. But the thing about resilience is that it's inherent within everyone. You get it from inside. It's not something external to you. It's not something you can buy. Um, you don't have a deficit. It's not that you can't build it. Right. And there's certain behaviors that are what I call success factors uh, for, for building resilience. But resilience is built in the presence of stressors, not in the absence of them. So is post-traumatic growth the same as resilience? No, post-traumatic growth is what happens to a person after they've gone through a deeply challenging experience where there's usually a lot of emotional pain loss it could be the death of someone it can be the loss of your career it can be the loss of a relationship you know where there's deep pain and from that there is growth in one or several areas of one's life that allows one to derive more meaning now from their life and have a better understanding of the world so that growth can be in your personal development sector or a career or vocation or spirituality or relationships that would not be in existence or not be as they are had you not gone through this really difficult, painful experience. So it's kind of like Phoenix rising from the ashes, growth from pain. Now, resilience building is a driver of that post-traumatic growth. And when you can actively build resilience and engage in those resilience activities, you're better primed, if you will, to be able to experience that post-traumatic growth. I'd like to shift just a tad, if we could. The term self-care, I hear that a lot. Yeah. What, what, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, you know, a lot of people don't know what that really means. They hear it a lot, and right away, uh, people tend to think about a bubble bath or lighting a candle. <laughs> uh, and that's been driven by marketing 
um, I may be aging myself, but that old commercial for Calgon bubble bath, you know, Calgon, take me away. The, the beleaguered housewife runs into the bathroom to pour herself a Calgon bubble bath. So self-care is really about engaging in those activities that bring you to a place of calm. It's activities that offer you relief from stress, from too much or not enough of whatever. But they are activities that for you personally, they bring you to a place of calm and well-being. And self-care has to be self-initiated. Right. I could say to you, Jason, a great way for you to experience the benefits of self-care is to go and run five miles today. And you may say to yourself, hell no, that is not me. Right. So while some people get benefit through working out and they consider that their self-care, it's not a gold standard. Everybody has to figure out what it is for themselves that is a self-care activity. For introverts, a lot of times self-care is downtime, going to a place within, because introverts recharge by being with themselves. Extroverts recharge by being with others, right? So we have to leave room for all of the different varieties and expressions of self-care that people can in, engage in, but you'll know you're doing it when it you you feel a sense of well-being, of calm, and a lot of times time just flies. Uh, you're it's usually some kind of a right brain activity, something that involves creativity, um, and you know, you can sit down and think you've only been there for 10 minutes and four hours have gone by um, and you feel calm and you feel good and you feel nourished and replenished. That's self-care. And it's safe to say, probably, Lisa, with COVID, you're talking about introverts and extroverts with the impact of COVID. I imagine this self-care is probably evolving as we're evolving. That's right. And clashing, I will say, because a lot yeah. of times we tend to believe what's good for us will be good for other people. And so we, in the best of intention, you need to be doing fill in the blank yeah. where, you know, that works very well for you, but not necessarily for the other person. And there really are distinct differences between introverts and extroverts. And a book that really had a huge impact on me, I am a card-carrying introvert. I have a job that has extrovert qualities to it. Um, before COVID, I was always getting up in front of hundreds of people in a room. And But I will tell you, after a day of teaching or whatever, I would go back to my hotel room, zip it. I was to myself, um, you know, like a mole in a hole. Um, and recharge until till I went out. So, um, you know, being confined, we have to be able to adapt and find what we can do to recharge based on who we are, you know, in that environment. And that book that I was about to reference, um, it, it's called um, Quiet, um, Being in a World That Won't Stop Talking. And it is 
I think one of the best books out there for introverts. I don't remember the the author's name. I think her last name is Kane, C-A-I-N. Um, but that book was very meaningful to me because it put into words what I've known since I was a very, very little girl. I am an introvert. I know why I do what I do. Um, and there are a lot of benefits to being an introvert in a culture that really celebrates extroversion and tends to minimize or deride drive introverts, uh, it was a real um, acknowledgement um, that yes, introverts have have um, there are benefits to being an introvert that that extroverts don't necessarily have. But right now, being that we are all in confinement, um, we just need to make sure we leave enough space for each other and not judge how we all engage in self-care um, if we are in fact doing it because people get tired of trying to engage in self-care as well. Yeah. Obviously being uh, kind of in unprecedented times with COVID, how can you help somebody cope with the fact that they're not near that loved one, that family member that even an hour away seems like, you know, oceans away? Yeah. That's probably one of the hardest things that, um, this pandemic is forcing us to grapple with that loss of tactile just being able to hug mm -hmm. being able to sit in in a room and have a couple with with someone very simple pleasures right so we have to get creative and we have to open ourselves to doing things that maybe we weren't doing before that will help us feel closer and, you know, our ancestors knew how to do this in good old fashioned letter writing. Um, you know, they were separated by war and everything else. And I think I read once where um, John and Abigail Adams, at the point where they had been married 14 years, they only actually lived together for seven. He was always gone. And they had a great marriage and a very long lasting marriage. You know, write, letter writing is really magical because when you sit down to write a card or a letter, you're touching that piece of paper, right? So your DNA is on it, actually. And you're, you're infusing your energy into that piece of paper and you're pouring yourself into those words. That person knows you sat down, you took the time, you were thinking just about them when you were writing this out. It's a very intimate act. It's very personal. Um, it's emotional. It's kind. And it's simple. And all it takes is a piece of paper, a pencil, a pen, and an envelope, and a stamp. And there's something joyful about opening a letter because we get so few of them now. Yeah. We're so used to the technology, which is quick, mm -hmm. but it's cold, right? So you open this letter and, and, you, and it's like they've embedded a piece of their soul in that letter. And so when that person that you were thinking about opens it up, there you are um, in a way talking to them. When they read your words, they hear your voice and it brings you into the room. And sometimes that's all we can do um, during, during a time like this, is bring each other into the room through these person, personal touchstones. And a letter is something that you can pull out 
you know, you, we, we don't get the urge to continually pull out an email, right? But we, we want to pull out a card or a letter. We see their handwriting. And especially after that person dies, having their handwriting on something is, is sacred. It's something you wish. How has COVID impacted the way we grieve, Lisa? Oh, um, it's creating such bereavement devastation. Um, and, and that's going to go on for some time. It is, as I mentioned before, it, it's violating the social contract that we have with our loved ones of what we do at the time of their imminent death and at the time of their death. When we know someone is close to death, unless we are physically prevented or we're in an estrangement, we go to that person's bedside. We, we go to them. Even if they're comatose, we go and we want to talk and we want to finish unfinished business. We want to touch them. We want to hold their hand, even if they can't respond. And I will tell you also that hearing is the very last sense to go when we're dying. And so even when someone is in a coma, don't, don't necessarily believe that they can't still hear you or sense your presence in, in some way. I started out doing hospice work. Uh, I spent 20 plus years um, in, in organ donation working with brain dead patients. And I've had a lot of experiences in both of those realms that would defy science, right? So you know, we're not able to do that. People are standing outside of windows. Uh, people are asking healthcare professionals to, to face, hold up the phone and iPads and FaceTime. It's really interfering with that deeply intimate, personal, private moments that we have with people before they, they leave. And then, of course, after the death, um, depending on what the pandemic is doing in your area, you may not even be able to attend the funeral. They're live streaming funerals or, or doing very private ones where only one or two people are going and not to be able to attend a funeral in our culture also seems like a betrayal. Like we've abandoned our loved one, even though cognitively we understand the constraints, it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel like we're getting the chance to say goodbye with the rituals and the behaviors that we're raised to believe is how we honor our loved ones. And this has lasting impact. I'm seeing this all over. I'm working with people who, whose bereavement has been complicated and um, exacerbated by the things that COVID is preventing us of doing, even in the face of death. And that's going to last for a, a very long time. And it can be hard to accept that we're not going to be able to do the things that we naturally believe we should do at the time of death or after with our loved one. But again, it's coming to embrace and accept what is and then asking yourself, what is possible? How else can I express my respect and love to the person who has died or their family? How can I align myself with the spirit of, of this loved one? And sometimes that's just about bringing them into the room with you, thinking about why you love them, how you felt being with them, 
what they brought to your life, the gratitude you have for them in that they were in your life and talking to them. It doesn't matter if it looks like you're talking to no one in the room, who cares? You know, there's something about spirit to spirit exchange and doing hospice work. Like I said, I saw a lot of things and experienced a lot of things that science cannot explain. And I say that only to inspire you that we're not necessarily constrained by our physical surroundings, um, that human beings are more than just their physicality. And we have a way of connecting and communicating with each other. So if that's what you can do, then don't say, well, this is only what I can do. Embrace it and do it and do it as often as you need to, writing letters to them as well. You know, putting it in a, in a drawer, continuing to talk with them. You know, I'm a thanatologist. I specialize in death and grief and loss. And there's, you know, a concept known as continuing bonds that we continue to have relationships with our loved ones who have died. We just accommodate for their physical absence, but we still love them. We still might ask ourselves, you know, what would dad say about this? You know, what would mom do? You know, and we might be as we're driving, you know, having a conversation with mom um, and hearing what she might say to us. It's a way that we remain connected.